Welcome to the Chronic Sex Podcast. Chronic Sex talks about how self-love, relationships, sex, and sexuality are all affected by chronic illness and disability. That's not all, though. We'll also touch on intersectionality, social justice, empathy, current events, and much, much more. Given the range of subject matter, this podcast is not suitable for those under the age of 18, and unless you have headphones, you probably shouldn't be listening to us at work. My name's Kirsten Schultz, and I'm your host. Good morning. It's April. Um, and yes, I am actually recording this this morning. Hooray! <laughs> I had a lot this weekend to do, um... Because I've got a trip coming up this week, and just uh, preparing for that has really kind of slapped me in the face. <laughs> um, as far as a few updates going on, this this week, um, Tuesday through Friday, I will be in Dallas at the Burrell Institute's Patient Experience Conference. Um, I just joined their Global Patient Advisory Board. And I'm really excited. Um, my college best friend lives there, and I have a couple other friends that live there. And I'm really excited to just go and um, be there and enjoy the space and learn and contribute. And um, the Barrel Institute is like world renowned for putting patients at the forefront of things. So I'm really excited about that. It's been a while since I really nerded out in a healthcare-specific space, and it's it's nice. It's a nice thing. Um, the husband has a cold, and I can't tell if I'm starting to get it or if it's just allergies because my air quality thing keeps telling me the pollen is really terrible. So I apologize for the sound of my voice this morning. I'm really excited about today's episode. Um... But just to continue with a couple updates, I picked up two jobs. Very excited about that. Um, and I start both of them on the 8th. One is with a local organization that um, focuses on independent living and providing accessibility for um, fellow disabled peeps and um, doing advocacy. And it's really like stuff I already do, but here locally. So I'm really excited about that. And then second thing is writing for a healthcare organization that, um, is one of the biggest in the world and focuses on like, um, addiction and substance misuse as well as, you know, eating disorders and other things where you might potentially be, um, within a rehab center. So yeah, I'm really excited about getting to do both of those. Um, it'll be nice to go back to working 60-hour weeks. <laughs> it'll be nice for my paychecks. Um, and I'm also really excited about a lot of the other things I've started to do lately. As I just mentioned, being on the Barrel Institute's um, Patient Advisory Board. I also got on the one of the local healthcare organizations, um, equivalents. So I'm really excited about being able to help improve healthcare. Um, and like I said, without moving in healthcare specific spaces the last couple of years and taking some time off from those and then going to like these interviews to be on these boards or even for my jobs and share some of the things that I've done and see people be like, oh shit. <laughs> it was a really nice feeling. Um, I think that with the Me Too story that I had to tell that involved healthcare stuff, um, which I did a, a, an episode on a while ago, but I think it really just pushed me out of that space along with, um, you know, a creator of a certain theory involving utensils uh, getting upset at me writing a piece praising her and then um, 
sicking her 12,000 followers on me. Yeah, that was, that was not my favorite. Um, and that's what I'm going to say about that. But anyway, I'm super excited. It's going to be a busy, busy um, several months, but in the best way. And one of the ways my neurodivergent brain works the best is um, when I have a lot of things to do, I manage my time really well. And that pressure helps me work better. So I'm very excited about going back to that space because it's been a little bit. Um, Since it is April, I do want to take a moment to remind people that Autism Speaks is a hate organization filled with eugenics-related ideas. And instead of helping people live their best lives... Um, with autism involved, they really back things like ABA therapy, which, um, is abuse. Like it's straight up abuse. So don't do the light it up blue. Don't do the fucking puzzle pieces. Um, I've got a piece on medium that I can link to here that talks all about all of the terrible things that autism speaks is involved in. Including backing the site The Mighty, which is why I never share anything from them. So, keep that in mind this month. Okay, now to today's episode. I am speaking with Dr. Ginevra Lipton. She's a graduate of Tufts University School of Medicine. She's board certified in internal medicine and trained in functional medicine. She um, developed fibro when she was in medical school and kept it quiet from, like, people at the school because she saw how other doctors were reacting to it. Um, I think that's a fairly common thing. Maybe not in medical school, but um, just in general. You're training for something or you're, you're in school and you keep a diagnosis quiet because of how people around you are reacting to similar things. She's really worked um, as a fibro patient herself to find treatments that are helpful um, that, you know, Western medicine may not have looked at or that other medicine might not have looked at. And she's just a fantastic person. She runs um, a place called the Frida Center for Fibromyalgia in Portland, Oregon, And um, that's a nod to Frida Kahlo, and we'll talk about her a bit in the episode, but it's, um, it seems like looking back at her life, she likely had fibromyalgia, um, partially as a result of a major accident that she was in. That was just horrific. Um, Like, I don't know how she survived it. Horrific. I'll put a link in the show notes for that, too, in case you are unaware um anyway uh ginevra is just a fantastic person um we crossed paths at the women in pain conference in 2016 and we'll talk a bit about that um and i just adore her with all my heart (laughs) um and she's got a couple pieces on her site right now to talk about sex with fibromyalgia and the difficulties surrounding that. So I'll put those in the show notes as well. So please go take a look at that. Um, And without further ado, since it's been nine minutes of me yakking your ear off, (laughs) here is my conversation with Dr. Ginevra Lipton. Please note really quick though, um, there's a couple points where her audio cuts out because Skype um (laughs) i will do my best in the transcription to make sure that it is easy to tell what she was saying so if you if you can't figure it out from context clues take a look at the transcription and that will help all right now really without further ado here's my conversation with dr Ginevra lipton the badass 
Hello, Ginevra. It's so wonderful to speak with you. It's wonderful to speak with you. Thanks for having me here. Of course. Thank you for being here. I'm really excited to have you on and um, talk more about the cool things that you're doing. And um, yeah, do you mind giving people like a tiny little synopsis of mm, like your entire life and <laughs> in 30 seconds or less <laughs> you know all the cool stuff you do <laughs> well, let's see all the cool stuff I do um well I'm a doctor I do uh integrative kind of style of medicine and I focus on fibromyalgia and I focus on that because I developed it myself in medical school and that set me off on a whole journey of discovery to try and figure out what was going on in my body and what I could do to help. And uh, I did not get a lot of help from medical professionals. So I'm trying to kind of be the the opposite of the kind of doctors that I was on the um, receiving end when I was in medical school. Yeah, that's it's so important. And I think patients can talk about how important it is to wear blue in the face, right? But it's really refreshing to have someone who's both a patient and a provider go like, no, th this is messed up. <laughs> Which is, I feel like that is my role. Like I can almost translate between the two worlds because doctors don't, or healthcare providers aren't, they have a really hard time hearing things that aren't from other healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I can sort of translate between the, the worlds, both so that doctors can better understand what the actual experience of patients is like, and then vice versa. So I can kind of translate what the science and what doctors are talking about into like doable action plan items that patients can maybe do for themselves. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of trying to live in both worlds there. Yeah. And I was um, reading through your book, The Fibro Manual. And first of all, thank you for writing this book. Um, it's so needed. And so important. Um, I really love how the tone of it is somehow both from a place of authority, but not like in a cocky way mm -hmm. and like very relatable. And I just, I really feel like this is a book that only you could have written. And, you know, especially at the end where you have kind of this doctor to doctor speak and, and resources for other healthcare providers on treating fibromyalgia and, and taking care of patients. It's just fantastic. Thank you so much. I, I tried, I will say that it was a very uh, kind of nerve wracking proposition to write, to write the book. You know, it's very easy to talk about the medicine part of things, but actually talking about my own experience and putting myself out there in the world in that way felt so vulnerable and I still feel it's really hard to talk about my story and I you know it's much easier to just sort of be like a medical professional at the Mayo Clinic giving you advice but like when you're actually talking about what is happening in your own body and your own personal experience you know I often will start out giving a talk and then all in the middle of it start talking about my experience and then start crying and I'm like darn start crying again <laughs> Who's cutting onions in here? Stop it. Right, exactly. I'm always like, don't cry, don't. Oh, there I go. But I can't, you know, it's so close to home, right? So thank you. I'm glad that the tone, I'm glad that you, you liked it. Thank you. Yeah, it's so great. And it's been sitting on my bookshelf for ages. <laughs> well, and finally, you, you had an excuse to read it. I did. It's, um, it's been a nice push back into reading more things. So good. Well, I'm happy to help. I'm happy to help. You're just helping people all over you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and feel free to say you're not ready to talk about this at the moment or, or whatnot, but, um, should we talk about sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like I should play that salt and pepper song, <laughs> which ironically was my favorite song when I was like, Six. <laughs> that is fantastic. I bet you were a very cool six-year-old. I mean, I'm not gonna brag, but like uh, you were yeah. kind of cool. Come on. <laughs> um, you have gotten a a couple of pieces up on your site right now that talk about 
the interactions between fibromyalgia and sexuality and and the act of sex itself um what kind of spurred you to write those well i wish i had talked about it in the book and i sort of wimped out and didn't really address sexual like the sexual dysfunction that can come along with chronic illness and fibromyalgia in particular and then that's sort of been gnawing at my soul because patients ask me about it all the time. It is a top of mind issue. I mean, it really, it really is. And it's something that's embarrassing for people to talk about. They have to work up a lot of courage to say, hey, you know, I don't, I don't want to have sex with my husband anymore because it hurts and it's really destroying my marriage. What can I do? And, and I felt like I couldn't do it justice um, in the in the brief kind of patient interaction that I had with folks. Plus, I also knew that if my patients were asking it, lots of people had the same question. And so I had to kind of work up my, you know, pull up my big girl pants and say, okay, I'm going to write about this. And I'm going to talk about what like the actual issues are for folks. And I wanted to both talk about it from a medical side and also more from kind of the personal experience um, and that that's the piece where I, I sort of it's challenging to know how much to like put out on the Internet, you know, mm-hmm. like as, as a doctor, do I want to be talking about in my personal sex life? Here are the challenges that I had. But of of course, the reality is I have fibromyalgia. I developed it in medical school. I was married at the time and intercourse became really painful for me. And I stopped wanting it. And it really contributed to the ending of my marriage. I mean, there's not, there's not any other way to kind of go about it, but I, I haven't, I haven't talked about it very much. Um, and I realized that it was time, it was kind of time to change that because if I'm ashamed to talk about it as a doctor, I can't help people. And so I needed to sort of get over that component. So the notes that I've been writing down over the years, what um, I pulled together into the three different blog posts. Um, The first was about kind of dealing with the fatigue and low libido that comes along or can come along with fibromyalgia. And in reality, if you're super fatigued and you get in bed, the last thing you really want to do, you just want to sleep. You know what I mean? There's no other bedroom activities that appeal. So trying to kind of address ways around that, ways to treat medically the fatigue and libido issues, but then also deal with the emotional component of it um, and kind of trying to find some workarounds for that, finding other ways to be intimate that aren't maybe um, intercourse based um, if that's painful for folks. So that was, that was kind of inspiration. And then I wanted to talk also about oxytocin and some other kind of experimental treatments. I don't know how much you know about oxytocin, but it, it can really help to both kind of increase the quality of orgasm and also can increase libido for folks that are not having having much libido. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a really fascinating chemical, I think, right? Um, I was thinking about this yesterday, actually, funny enough, because it was my nephew's birthday and I wasn't there for when he was born, but when my niece was born and, and when they were inducing my sister, basically what they gave her was like a big dose of oxytocin. Uh-huh. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Like in mega doses, it will totally, totally start the process of labor. Right. It. I think it's one of those things we don't talk about enough. And when we talk about it, right, this beautiful little chemical, we talk about it in euphemisms or we right. talk about it like, oh, you make me feel fuzzy. Like chocolate makes me feel fuzzy. Like, <laughs> you know, we don't actually name it. And I think that's one of the disservices that we do to ourselves as a society is by not talking about it and by not using the proper language nobody's getting to the bottom of everything that this chemical can do the benefits it can have um or even the the role it plays in our everyday lives i completely agree and i think you know as i did more research on oxytocin i was like why aren't we why don't why aren't we talking more about this? This chemical is kind of amazing, you know? Like, it has a really fascinating effect on the brain. 
And I don't know why we always speak euphemistically, like we call it the love hormone or the snuggle hormone. And I don't, why, why not just call it what it is? I agree. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like when I see people call their vagina their no-no zone. <laughs> and like, I know. I get it. You know, if we've been raised in certain situations, if we've gone through things, like, Sometimes the words themselves are really difficult to say, but like they're your genitals. It's okay. Yeah, totally okay. So, so I I have a daughter, and um, as a as both a doctor and a feminist, and like a pro using the right words for things, um, I we never used any words, you know, like pee pee or you know, it was all like uh, vulva and vagina. And I remember when she was like two years old. We were at the park. My husband picked her up and she was, you know, sitting kind of on the back of his neck and she, and she screamed out in the middle of the park like, Daddy, my vulva hurts. And I was like, that's my girl. She's using the proper, proper noun. <laughs> oh, my God. I was like, well, yes, she, okay. It was hilarious. It was like one of the funniest things. And it was awesome. I was like, that's good. Mission accomplished. That's amazing. I have, like, the biggest smile on my face right now. Just when I think I couldn't adore you more. <laughs> well, I think we are like-minded. I, I will say that when I when I saw you at the Women in Pain conference, I was like, who is this person? She is so, you have so much bravery. And you were on a, a panel. I think it was you and... I think there were some physicians on the panel. I can't remember yeah. who all was on the panel, yeah, it was but like a like a psych. Yeah, like a psychiatrist or psychologist, and then a few other folks I knew, and I was just blown away. I was like, "Who is this person? Wow!" And you you were so everybody else was sort of um, skirting around the issue and not wanting to say, you know, kind of talking about it euphemistically, and you said something like. You know, we just need to talk about sex and the fact that it can be really challenging when you're dealing with chronic illness. And you just had this very forthrightness. And I was like, mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> that makes me so happy. <laughs> like, I, I think that was um, the first panel I'd been on that the other people were, like, strictly patients. Um, and so to go from having left my day job a couple months before working for physicians to sitting between like healthcare providery types and like holding my own <laughs> I'm gonna sit up a little taller right now and just <laughs> you totally should I you just killed it man so I remember writing your name down I'm like okay once I have the courage to talk about this I'm gonna I'm gonna connect with her because you you have a really important and beautiful message and the work that you're doing is amazing. Like you really, you should be sitting up tall. Someone asked me, I think it was, um, on, on, for an upcoming episode of the podcast, fat chicks on top, which I love. Um, <laughs> that, that sounds amazing. Oh God. They, um, asked me like what my favorite thing I've done recently was either that, or it was like, in a job interview recently and I like thought about all of the interesting things that I've been involved in and I went uh I can't choose just one <laughs> like uh you know getting my house representative to sponsor a bill was pretty cool and like talking to him about how painful arthritis is and that arthritis types can be painful like that was cool um, I mean, not That's, the subject matter, but like, but right. No, the fact that you were able to just like, go for you. Right. But like, that was back in 2014. And, and now <laughs> all the things I've done since then, I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you've been busy. You've been really busy. A little bit, a little bit, but you have too. I have a little yeah. bit. Yeah. yeah. I will say writing a book, a lot of work. A lot of work. Might have underestimated how much work that was. <laughs> That's good for me to know. <laughs> to self, it's a lot of work. And then I, you know, running a practice, a lot of work. And then what I think is the biggest, the, 
the most challenging thing and the thing that takes the most of my kind of psychic energy is the fact that I feel like I'm having to fight against mainstream medicine. You know, it's like this uphill battle where I'm trying to get them, get other doctors to understand what, what being in chronic pain is like, what the reality of the healthcare system, how the healthcare system right now treats people in chronic pain. I, I think we're really mistreated, um, almost sometimes criminally. So, um, my favorite thing that I did recently was go down and testify before the, our state legislature. I don't know if you're familiar with what they're trying to do here in Oregon. The Medicaid, so the state-run government um, insurance, is they have a proposal where they're going to mandate opioid tapers for anybody with chronic pain. They're only going let, to let it be for acute pain. So everybody with fibromyalgia, everybody with chronic arthritis pain, no matter what across the board, mandating a taper. We would be the first, be the first state in the nation to do it, and it would be an absolute disaster. I mean, I think I think we'd have a huge, huge bump in suicide rates. Mm-hmm. And I, I will tell you, testifying that was another time where I, in my three minutes, managed to start crying. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a pretty appropriate place to do that, though. I, oh gosh, it was so embarrassing. But you know what? Like I. It, it's something I'm really passionate about. And I, what I said to them is I really feel like if, if you pass this into law, I will lose 10% of my patients to suicide. Like you can't, you can't do that. You just, you cannot do that to a provider. You can't do that to human beings. Um, it's anyway, so there, there's so much kind of advocacy work that I'm trying to work on. But that's so exhausting. Like, really, it's so it takes I don't know how you it takes so much, or at least for me, it takes so much psychic energy to really mm-hmm. kind of put myself out there and then to put myself out there against other doctors. I mean, it was all doctors, basically, that I was testifying um, to. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this. But I had to do it. If I don't do I was the only doctor that spoke up. It was me and like 12 patients giving testimony. So I feel like it's my duty. I have to be the doctor that speaks up because who else is going to, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I first learned about that a couple years ago when they were first starting to talk about it. One, it's wild to me that it's taken like a year and a half to two years for them to really get to this point of, of having people openly like testify against it. But then two... I just don't understand with with all of the features that have been written lately about, hey, y'all are forgetting chronic pain patients. Right. And even the pushback um, was it last week against Kirsten Gillibrand um, right. and and how she's actually like sat down with some of my friends and like talked through some of this, which like. Has she? Yeah. I <gasps> like like her people, not like her, her. But still like. That's still that counts, right? Like, um, Matthew Cortland is a is a pretty well known disability activist and lawyer on Twitter, and he shared about meeting with with her people, and um, so did Rebecca Coakley, who um, used to work in the Obama administration and and does a lot around accessibility and stuff. Um, but yeah, they went and, and sat and talked, and were like, "Hey, no, <laughs> this is bad." Don't yes, do this. this is a horrible idea. I'm so glad that there's there's people advocating out there for us, and it's so hard because there's so many fibromyalgia patients out there that want to do advocacy and and have strong feelings about things, but they're too flattened by their disease to be out there marching, you know, like or to do to do much advocacy. So the way I look at it is, um, you know, I'm I'm trying to help as many people as I can to feel better than they are now so that they can stand up and fight for themselves or for their rights or for, you know, when you're flattened with pain or fatigue or both, you can't really be out there speaking up for yourself or trying to make changes in our very broken healthcare system. So that's part of why I think it's taken so long for kind of the pain patient's voice to be heard is just because we, we as a population don't have, we don't have some of the strong organizations or funding and it's all kind of grassroots efforts and it's all mostly 
patients kind of advocating. I mean, everybody that testified in Salem um, last week with me was, you know, there of their own accord. And there was a lot more people that wanted to go but couldn't because they didn't feel up to it that day. So I kind of feel like those of us that do feel better have a, a duty to, to kind of help help people who are a little bit maybe not not feeling as well um, or maybe on good days trying to do more. I don't know. It's really, it's a really hard situation. It is. It's, I think it's also fascinating because, I mean, just in the last five to 10 years or so, we've finally gotten more concrete proof that things like fibromyalgia exist. And so a lot of physicians or other healthcare providers who kind of poo-pooed the idea of fibro being a real condition, like there's still you know, providers practicing with that mentality and with the paternalistic view, but also especially like the idea that especially like women in pain are hysterical. And the things, some of the things patients tell me from their, you know, experiences what I, with what I call dinosaur doctors, you know, dinosaur thinking, like I, there are still doctors out there that say fibromyalgia isn't real. It's all in your head. If you just lost weight, it's just because you're depressed. It's just because this. And I I really see it. I, mean, I think fibromyalgia, we would be 50 years ahead of where we are now in our understanding if it was uh, not an illness that primarily affected women. Like, I, I think that, you know, it took us 50 years for medical professionals to be like, oh, it's real. When they were saying that they hurt, when all those women were saying that they hurt, Oh, okay. Like it shouldn't have taken 50 years for that realization. No, it shouldn't have. But it did. And we've got how many patients in the meantime dealing with fibro or chronic fatigue syndrome or a number of conditions that are really misunderstood or have horrible things said about them in media or, you know, physicians just don't get it. And And fibromyalgia is more accepted. It absolutely is. And and you're right. It is just in about the past 10 years that it's become more accepted. But I still call it the F word of medicine because I'm telling you, if I go into like a crowded room of doctors and yell fibromyalgia, people will be running for the hills because they are afraid. They don't, they don't understand it. It feels overwhelming. It feels, they feel helpless. You know, they feel frustrated by it. Mm-hmm. It's not something that we have great tools, at least in Western medicine, to help. So, you know, as I went through my training, I could kind of see more and more why doctors were so frustrated. You know, you don't have a lot of tools and you don't have a lot of time and you need both of those to help people with fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. So I can't, I can sort of understand it from a physician perspective, but also, but as a patient, it hurts so much that rejection or that um, dismissal. I mean, I have patients that seriously have post-traumatic stress disorder from their doctors like they get ptsd symptoms triggered when they go into a doctor's office like how crazy is that that their their actual doctor has sort of like continued the the traumatization you know that just like blows my mind but it it's really it really does happen um it's brutal it can be really brutal yeah because it it either forces you to be in a position where you're constantly going through that fight, flight, fawn or freeze response, right? Which just aggravates fibro symptoms to the oh, max. Yes, totally. Or you're just not even attempting to get care because you're not at the point where you can do that. Mm-hmm. Or you just kind of give up. I mean, I have patients I've just like, you know, I haven't even tried to see a doctor in 10 years because I just, I know they're not going to be able to help me. Like, oh, it's just heartbreaking, you know? Like, we've really done something wrong. We've really, we've really failed when it comes to fibromyalgia and I think chronic pain care in this country. Like, I, I think it is a big, fat failure. Yeah, agreed. It's it's bad. It is. And the opioid crisis that, you know, the, the I mean, I th- the way I look at it is opioids are imperfect tools to manage pain, mm-hmm. but for some people, that's the only tool they have. So until we have better tools, isn't an imperfect tool better than no tool? You know, it doesn't, it just doesn't make sense to me the way 
just seems very wrong-headed, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I have friends who can't be on um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory meds because of counterindications or, you know, a history of ulcers or a number of other things. Right. So then, like, what do they do, <laughs> right? Like, like what's your, And then they, they can't be on cannabis legally, usually, because, mm-hmm. you know, X, Y, and Z. So then what are you, yeah, what are your options? Right. Opioids. That's your options. And I, I think it's such a shame, too, because, you know, going into kind of talking about cannabis, right? As someone who has fibro, too, like, I have found um very low doses of like high cbd low thc cannabis stuff mm-hmm. to be almost like a vacation for me from pain yes, yes. i completely like right there that is like almost the perfect um kind of fibro cannabis recommendation like high cbd low thc it can be particularly like at night it can be so good for improving sleep quality. Like I, I think cannabis is a much better medicine overall for fibromyalgia compared to like if you look at opioids. Mm-hmm. But the the challenges, the legal the legal ramifications around it are just a mess. Yeah. And I had a patient, I had a patient that ended up losing her job um, because she had a drug screen that tested positive, even though she had a medical card that said she could. You know, I had written a letter saying medically she needed to use this, um, and she she lost her job because of the urine drug screen. Now, you know, when that risk is there, of course people are going to choose opioids. So, I I also feel like it can provide a nice a nice break from um, pain. And the other trick that I like people to try is to use topical cannabis like balms or salves that have some THC or CBD and CBD. Because THC actually is, it works really well topically. I don't know if you've ever tried it topically, but it mm. absorbs nicely right into your tissue and particularly into the fascia, the connective tissue around the muscles, which is really the area that hurts in fibromyalgia. So for people that don't want the mind-altering effects of THC, but they want the pain-relieving benefits, I tell them to go to a dispensary, get as strong a salve as they can, and lather it on themselves, and that can be amazing really really amazing so it's also helpful for somebody that's maybe worried about trying cannabis i have some patients that are like you know i'm 75 years old i i don't want to take cannabis like what can i do I'm like well you don't have to take it but you need to rub it on yourself <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a good way to like introduce you know it into the into you um i've also heard of some you probably know all about these but like cannabis infused loops that I think um one of my patients really found reduced her pain with intercourse and she said I said well what does that feel like and she said well it kind of feels like my vagina's high and I was like huh like <laughs> I need more specifics because I don't know what you're I don't have a frame of reference for that so can you explain she's like well I felt Felt some pain relief, but also felt like it kind of increased her um, pleasure sensations. And I was like, okay, I think this could be. Uh... So that's something that, I mean, particularly if you're having painful intercourse, I'm like, try, you know, try it if if you're able to access it. Have you had any? I mean, I know you're probably much more knowledgeable about all the various lubricants out there in the market, but have you tried any of the cannabis-based ones? So I haven't tried any that have the THC in them. Um, I have tried a CBD infused lube and they had to take it off the market because they need to reformulate it because they found out it was breaking condoms. (laughs) Uh, But um, it's from Good Clean Love, which I think is actually in Eugene. Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so I'll I'll have to keep you in the loop when I yes. see it come back up. Um, because it that was on its own very helpful. Um, from a Excellent. from a like texture standpoint, it was a little sticky. Yeah, so maybe they need to reformulate the. Yeah, but, so CBD on its own can be 
can be helpful. Um, I have a CBD muscle balm that I sell because uh, I found it's nice to have something that has no THC in it because then you don't have to, you know, you can take it on a plane or don't have to worry about it. And it can give some pain relief really from muscle relaxation. And that would make sense to me from a painful intercourse standpoint that if you can kind of relax some of those um, muscles at the vaginal entrance there, that it would have, you'd have less pain with intercourse. So maybe CBD lubes on their own. I, I didn't, I didn't know that existed. Yeah, that's the only one that I've found, although I haven't, like, gone in and done super searching. Um, But there is another sex educator called Ashley Manta, M-A-N-T-A, and um, she does a lot around talking about weed. (laughs) (laughs) And so she's um, talked a lot about THC-infused lubes and things like that. Um, so oh, she would a be a great resource. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. And next time you're out in Oregon, which you should definitely come out, um, we have some amazing dispensaries that I'm sure have like 20 different lubes. You could, we could go on a little field trip. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I love it. Um, I, I definitely need to come visit because my sister lives in Eugene. So <gasps> Yes, you do. Yes, you come do. back and visit my old stomping grounds. Yes, for sure. Get out of Wisconsin for a little while. <sighs> yeah. Things are getting there here. We just got a new governor, and his thing uh, with his budget is that he wants to push for, at the very least, um, medical marijuana, finally, now that every other state around us has it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and and really push forward and like he's created a brand new health inequity council and wow. some really great things that are happening so knock on like you're gonna end up on that health inequity council <laughs> um i did send my information in the other day <laughs> while i was getting my oil changed <laughs> Because I can totally see how that panel may need you. That's fantastic. Yep. I sent them my master's capstone about patient engagement, too. Yes. Yes. Perfect. I mean, that's perfect. So, yes, you need to stay in Wisconsin and help help, help Wisconsin rise. Rise. Yep. But, it's good you know. to come to Oregon and, and see all the – we have such a amazing – like, we have – I heard a statistic – that we have in Oregon, we have more dispensaries than we do Starbucks. And we have a lot of Starbucks, like a lot of Starbucks. <laughs> so. Yes, and a lot of Dutch Brothers, which I miss terribly. Oh, yes, Dutch Brothers. Yes. And it's not like I'm a Starbucks fan, but seriously, if you look at how many we have and then think about how many dispensaries that means we have, we are, we are kind of the Mecca. Yes, it's true. Us in Colorado, but I think we're better. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm probably biased, right, uh, having grown right. up there, but like, yeah. <laughs> when did you, when did you leave? Oh, yeah, so I, um, I lived in Eugene from like 1993, I was like five, um, <laughs> to 2006, and then I moved out here. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't think I I had forgotten that you had had, or maybe I didn't know that you'd had such a West Coast roots. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was um, was born in Reno, and then we moved to Eugene, because, like, my whole extended family lives within about an hour's drive. Got it. Yeah. Well, a couple that are, like, six hours now, but at the time, they were within an hour's drive. (laughs) But now you're... Now you're far away. But now I'm like a 42-hour drive. <laughs> yes, yes, that's no good. It's a terrible well, drive. Well, definitely come out to Portland and we'll, we'll uh, have some dispensary adventures. Um, you know, before I started recommending uh, marijuana to patients, I was like, I need to know what, what I'm sending people into. Because, you know, you have to go in to a dispensary to fulfill your card. And um, so... <laughs> I had this like very weird period in my life a few years ago where I 
go to as many dispensaries around Portland as I could. I was like, you know, this is just not what I thought I'd be spending my life doing as a doctor, but I wanted to find the ones that were good so I could recommend it to folks. And then, and then it became really clear to me like, oh yeah, there's some that are really more oriented for the recreational consumer and some that are really more medical and like my baby boomer patients are going to feel more comfortable. Um, Cause you know, honestly, I think people kind of want it to feel like a pharmacy. Like I, I don't want to feel like I'm going to a frat house with um, Bob Marley posters and bongs, you know, like I'm, I'm trying, let's use medical terminology. Let's not name things, rainbow, Obama, Kush unicorn, you know, like let's call it relaxation number one. I don't know. Like, does it, does it not, I mean, is it just me or does it not feel very medical? No, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I know the one that I went to when I was in Portland was much more skewed towards the medical, and that was definitely something I was looking for. So, yeah. Yes. yes. I mean, I think we'll get there. I think we'll get there, but um, it is a it is a slow process. Although, as people are getting, as opioids become harder to access for chronic pain, I do think that more and more people that maybe wouldn't have considered cannabis before are now maybe more willing to consider it. So maybe things will start to like, maybe that will speed up things happening as far as in Wisconsin and, and things getting more approved um, for medical purposes. If more the only option for people, um, I mean, ultimately the pharmaceutical companies are going to get in on it. I'm, they're falling all over themselves to find a cannabis-based um, pain medication right now. So yeah. I think that will probably happen within the next five or ten years as well. Oh, yeah. I can definitely see that happening. So, yeah. And, you know, when, where that's where the money's going. So, unfortunately, it's not like they're spending a lot of money on, on researching it. for Like, for example, quality studies looking at, like, what types of cannabis help fibromyalgia pain the most? Is it more effective if you vape it versus use a tincture versus use it? You know, like we actually need to differentiate all that. But yeah. right now it's just anecdotal and people just kind of learning from each other or maybe on on social media or things like that. And I'm, I'm my inner scientist is always like, no, come on, let's do some studies, guys. And I'm like, who has $10 million to do a study? Nope, not me. <laughs> right. <laughs> so just in case you might be somebody that actually would know her, I'm like on a mission to get Lady Gaga, who has fibromyalgia, to fund like a fibromyalgia research institute. Lady Gaga's research institute for fibromyalgia. So you're way more likely to like run into her one day than I am. So just keep me in mind when you run into her. I can do that. <laughs> I can definitely do that. <laughs> Because don't we need, I mean, we need somebody that's like a celebrity, like we need what um, Michael J. Fox did for Parkinson's, you know, somebody that, I mean, I'm sure she doesn't want to be a spokesperson, spokeswoman for fibromyalgia, but she's kind of normalized it, I think. And um, one of my patients said, it's so great because now my 13-year-old daughter thinks it's really cool I have fibromyalgia because Lady Gaga has it. And I was like, yeah, I guess that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Having fibromyalgia is cool now. Thank you, Lady Gaga. <laughs> hey, I mean, I'll, I'll take as many commonalities with Lady Gaga as I can get. Me too. Me too. I was like, oh, yeah. So my mission is to someday be like, hey, Lady Gaga, let's fund some studies. So. I'm going to think of a hashtag so that when I put up this episode. Yes. If you can think of a good hashtag, I'm like, Lady Gaga for FM. I'm. I suck at making hashtags. It is not. It's. I don't know if it's like a generational thing, but I've just like missed that. I'm like, uh. It's so tricky. It is. It is. So. Yeah. Um, please think of a good Lady Gaga or fibromyalgia themed hashtag, and we'll get her eventually. I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's got more money than other countries. So. Safe <laughs> and like. The state of Oregon. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. She, um, and now she's an Academy Award winner. So I'm, I, I think, I hope that one day we can really do 
I mean, there's a really big gap right now. There's no drug companies funding studies for fibromyalgia. So there's very, very little research being funded. Um, Ever since the recession, the government's not really funding much research for anything, let alone fibromyalgia. So uh, I have a friend that's a fibromyalgia researcher, and she said, you know, 10 years ago, she was managing a budget of like, you know, $10 million. And now she's managing a budget of like $10,000. Like that's how things have dropped as far as fibromyalgia funding. And she's had to branch into studying other things just because there's no, there's no money there, you know? That's so bad. Isn't that? I know. It's really, sorry. It's kind of depressing. We should should think of something happier. (laughs) Um, I could ask you some fun questions. Oh, yeah. Ask me some fun questions. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. So, the first one is, what is your favorite curse word? (laughs) Or, like, it could be a stand-in curse word. Like, if you literally like to be like, ah, curses. I mean, I might call you a Batman villain, but, like... That's no, I wish that I used stand in curses, but I do not. I swear like a sailor and my daughter's taken after me. Well, fuck is my favorite curse word, but I particularly enjoy it when it's used in statements like, well, fuck a duck. And I say that because when I was four years old, my mom was on the phone with one of her friends and I heard her scream that out like, well, fuck a duck. And I remember being like, <gasps> And it was so, I, she went from being like my mom to being like this badass woman. I was like, who is this person that can just like yell that out? And now she has, I'm not kidding. She has that saying embroidered on like a pillow in her living room. And my mom's pretty awesome. Um, can y'all adopt me? (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, come on. You'd fit right in. So I, I, I really enjoy, I enjoy that. Like I enjoy the rhyming and I enjoy the like sort of shock, shock value. Cause who thinks of fucking a duck? You don't think of it. But right? once, once you've heard it, it's hard to not think about it. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting visual. <laughs> Especially if your major reference for ducks is puddles the duck. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Happy smiling face. Yep, yep. Interesting visual. Yep, you're welcome. <laughs> I love it. Oh my god. Um, and for people who don't know who Puddles the Duck is, he's the mascot for the University of Oregon. You've all seen him with his cute little ascot. <laughs> he's like my favorite. He does have an ascot, doesn't he? Yes. Yes. He is awesome. He is. We are into our ducks here. I just, I grew up in the age of Joey Harrington being on the Ducks team, so it was like, big deal. Uh huh. Because um, he almost won the Heisman, so like. I don't think it's been. We haven't had a big deal team since then, really. Not really. I no. mean, for maybe for a little while, but like, like in 2011, I think the Ducks beat the Wisconsin Badgers at the Rose Bowl. I was the only person wearing Ducks gear. <laughs> you are very brave. I they am. throwing beer at you. <laughs> People were like, so So it was on in the break room at work. And um, I was on my break and watched the end of it. And people just glared at me for the rest yes. of the day. Yes. You're like, I did not personally... Beat your team. That's awesome. Way to go. Way to stand out. Right? Stand out for your roots. I, ha- I have a I have a puddles hat. So, <laughs> you know. I've gotta represent. Now I know what to get you for Christmas, you know. More yeah. puddles paraphernalia. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And I can send you badger stuff. Hey, that would be fantastic. I did not even know that the Wisconsin badgers were a thing. Sorry. I don't no, it's totally fine. They're, I mean they're cute. Yeah, I'm just, badgers are cute. Yeah, and it's it's fun because um, so it's puddles the duck and then Bucky Badger <sighs> is the badger. Um, 
And the women's hockey team actually just won the NCAA tournament. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, man. They are something. That, wow. I have no words. They're something. That is amazing. So we have roller derby in Portland, and those women are my heroes. They're such badasses. They're so cool. I know. They really are. So I thought about doing it briefly, and then I was like, hmm, fibromyalgia, roller derby. (laughs) I'm thinking. I'm thinking that is not a marriage made in heaven. But my inner spirit is that of a roller derby girl. So, you know, I'm with them in spirit. I feel you so hard on that. <laughs> it's like we're twins. We kind of we are. Seriously. We need to, like, meet up again. Next time you're on the West Coast, or I'm in Wisconsin. Yeah. Well, you travel yeah. around because you're always, like, every time I, like, see you, you're like, and now I'm at this conference. I'm going there. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I do. And, <laughs> you know, hopefully, hopefully, knock on wood, I can come visit soon. That would be so awesome. You're so much fun. And the work that you do is so important. And um, I I think that you are wonderful. Thank you. I can't even begin to articulate how important the work you're doing. And, and as we talked about earlier, like bridging that gap between provider and patient. And, um, you know, even all the work that you do talking about Frida Kahlo and... Mm-hmm her experience with fibro and just she is my ultimate badass woman hero heroine I mean she she really inspires me so much um because you know she was in a really pretty horrible pain much of her life but she did not let that stop her she like took the art world by storm she went to her last uh, gallery showing, like she was carried in on her bed. Oh my god! Isn't that just the most fabulous? Just like, like a goddess, she was carried in because you know. So, I try. I named my clinic the Frida Center because I was trying to find that kind of commonality of inspiration that that could unite um, people dealing with chronic pain and particularly women in chronic pain. You know, not I can't. I can't, I wish I could cure fibromyalgia, but I haven't figured out a way to do that yet. But if I can both help people to reduce their symptoms and also to live better, bigger, happier lives, like that to me is a, is a win, you know? So free a a natural um, choice for that. And, and we do think that um, based on her art and her journals that, uh, in hindsight, that she did have fibromyalgia. I mean, it absolutely makes sense, especially when you think about that horrible accident. <sighs> yes, yes. And if you see, there's one of her um, paintings, she's got these, uh, it's called the broken column, and she draws all these nails on herself. And the nails are actually in many of the same points that we use to, um, the tender points we use to diagnose fibromyalgia. Oh. So she actually was like, I know it's amazing. Once you like look at the, like Google it, broken column, Frida Kahlo. And it's just like, oh, oh my God. It's like a visual description. It's the best representation of fibromyalgia. I think that one could, you know, I think just that one, you know, picture, thousand words. Um, so she, she like nailed it and that was what, 60 years ago? So that's why she's my hero. And then all of a sudden she became like super popular. I don't know. It was weird. Like now she's like everywhere. everywhere. But it's so interesting because people don't know about like her chronic pain life or even when things come out about her being like bisexual or maybe not monogamous, like people are like, what? What? I know. I'm like, are you kidding like she was that was she was fearless I mean she lived how she wanted to live you know absolutely absolutely and now I'm just wishing we were both in Brooklyn because a bunch of her yes um, yes her um like her some of her clothes and and like her how much I want to go to that like it's it ends like on May 10th or something and I've been like trying to figure out in my schedule like how can I get to Brooklyn for like two days because I want to see that I want to like make the pilgrimage but 
<sighs> Alas, I'll have to wait till they, hopefully it tours around. It was in London before, so maybe it'll go to see it like or Chicago, Chicago. That would be really, that would be good. We good. Yeah. So are you a fellow Frida fan? I am. I think I, I hadn't really understood so much about her living in chronic pain and stuff until the women in pain conference and watching you talk more about her life and, and, you know, how she inspires you. And it was just, um, a really great jumping off point for me as someone who likes to do research to like (laughs) dive into, you know, more stuff about her life. And, um, it seems like every, uh, like six weeks, something new is coming out. Um, and, and shedding new light about uh, the kind of life she lived and the kind of person she was. And it all just keeps coming back to, like, reaffirming her as a badass. Yes. Badass. She is. And I don't know if you remember, but when I gave that talk at the Women in Paint conference about Frida and how much she inspired me, did I start crying in the middle of it? Yes, yes I did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> It's okay. I was also crying, but it's okay. (laughs) It's so, crying in public is so embarrassing, but at the same time, whatever. I just got to get over myself, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you got to let yourself feel your feels. Yes, exactly. I got to feel my feels. And I think, I think Frida would approve. She would be like, yeah, cry, cry if you want to, laugh if you want to. Do both. Do both at the same time. While having sex, whatever you want, just do it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, maybe not on stage. That might be a little weird, but you okay. know, whatever. Yeah. I'm open. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I could talk to you forever. We'll have to do this again someday. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on this. I'm, I'm excited to, to be on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you for being on. I had so much fun talking to Ginevra. I think she is a fantastic person. Um, As you can hear, we're very similar, and I'm sure that doesn't hurt the flow of our conversation. (laughs) Um, I've taken time to put a bunch of stuff in the show notes as far as links to things like cannabis lube reviews and Frida Kahlo fibro stuff um, and more. So make sure to check those out if you are someone interested in those topics. Um, If you're not, or let's pretend you're just uh, already listening again, um, (laughs) make sure to check out uh, Dr. Lipton's book, The Fibro Manual. Um, as someone that's been living with fibro for a while, probably since childhood, but specifically known for the last couple years, um, I learned a lot of really helpful stuff from it, such as what the fascia actually is. So when we talk about myofascial release, um, the fascia is like, if you ever cook chicken, there's that really thin white layer that's over like a chicken breast that sometimes you might have to like clean off yourself. And that's actually what the fascia is. It's, it's that kind of membrane that goes over your muscles. So in fibro, when you're, when it feels like your muscles hurt, it's not actually your muscles. It's that layer. Um, and something that I've found particularly fascinating in the last couple days, um, since recording this interview is when I'm having that kind of pain, I'm envisioning it in that fascia, and it's completely changed how it feels. It's even changed, like, as I take a look at, um, you know, clearing up and helping some of those tender points and trigger points release. Um, it's really changed how that works. It's quite fascinating, and I don't really have an explanation for it, other than maybe it helps remove some of the narrative of, oh, it's my entire arm that's hurting, versus it's this very small part 
on this one muscle in my arm that hurts. I don't know. It's quite fascinating. And I wish I could explain it more. (laughs) But for now, that wraps up our April edition of the podcast. Please go out and have a fantastic month. And let's talk again on May 1st-ish. Chronic Sex is produced every two weeks by me, Kirsten Schultz. I use music from Pottington Bear because they're awesome. You can find show notes and more over at chronicsex.org. If you're enjoying listening to the show, please subscribe and that way you won't miss a single episode. If you're on iTunes, it'd be really chill if you take a minute to rate the show too. Not only does it give me great feedback, but it also helps the podcast get seen by people who may not know it exists. And that's pretty cool. You can support us over at patreon.com slash chronic sex. As always, you can find links to everything at chroniccex.org from social media accounts to resources, to sex toy reviews, and more. Until next time, please take care of yourself and remember that you are a freaking badass.